This is an RNZ podcast. Hello, Melody here, back again. And in case you're wondering what you've done to deserve me jumping in your ears twice in such a short period of time... This week we released an episode that was recorded live at Bats Theatre in Wellington and we released it in place of a regular Bang episode. So for those who were expecting one of those, I promised to compensate with some bonus content. You may or may not know that Bang goes to air every week on RNZ National as part of a programme called Nights, which is hosted by Brian Crump. And this week, instead of the regular programme, we took over the airwaves to answer listener questions about sex and relationships live as they came into the studio with a couple of Bang favourites. You'll see who they are in just a moment. And a lot of questions came in. We covered everything from what to do if you find your kid engaged in intimate play with another kid, how to deal with libido mismatch in a long-term relationship, female pleasure and body shaming, and a whole lot more. So that's what this is now. I'm going to let Brian do the rest of the introduction. Tonight, Bang is live in the studio. Joining me is Bang host, presenter and producer, Melody Thomas. Hi, Melody. Hello. And Melody has brought some guests with her. Yeah, so uh, if people are listening to the series already, they'll actually be familiar with them because they are officially regulars on the show. We often introduce them as a father-daughter sex advice duo, yes, which yes. just for shock value. No, <laughs> So Nick Bates is a sex therapist and clinical psychologist. He's based in Auckland and he's been doing that good work for 25 years. And his daughter, Lena, has just completed her sociology degree with a minor in sexuality and gender and has plans to be a sex educator in the future. And together they give great advice. They're both here. Hello. Hi, Lena. Hi. Hi, Nick. Good evening. Have you got any questions that have already arrived, Melody? I thought a good place to start because we've done this before. We've done it in past seasons and we encourage people who are listening to text throughout the hour. I thought, Nick, it would be a good idea because we have kind of a general audience present to talk about just some of the most common things that you hear as a sex therapist, as a relationship therapist that people are struggling with. I think the thing that people talk about the most is how difficult it is for people to talk about sex and that's one of the reasons I think this program is really important is that it's something that a lot of us find real difficulty in in communicating with our partners with our loved ones about and yet it's a really important part of life. Why do you think it is so difficult in this day and age? I'm not sure that this day and age is actually helping a lot actually because I feel like there's a lot of misinformation about sex and sexuality and a lot of expectation and a lot of pressure but not a lot of good education. I think there's a lot of yeah you've been given the accurate information but actually the tools to have those conversations are like a muscle like to have sensitive informed conversations need to start outside of talking about sex and lots of families don't have those going on and I think starting there would be a good place to start, not just about sex. Yeah, because that would be tough if the first mm. conversations you're having are about such a fraught topic. Yeah. And if it hasn't been encouraged in your family generally that you can talk about your feelings and yeah. your expectations and those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Just like how we've talked in earlier seasons, Brian, about yeah. consent with children and how you're not talking about sexual consent, you're talking about how you don't have to hug your grandparent if you don't want to and it starts there with just general bodily autonomy. Knowing about the physical side of sex is different to knowing about the whole field of relationships, intimate relationships. Absolutely. Which is a much more complicated, but 
it's probably more important, isn't it? I think it is in terms of um, enjoying your life. I think in terms of um, keeping uh, relationships and families stable, yeah. Our society is very much structured around families based on couples. Give me an example of the misinformation that you come across. I've got a good segue into this because yeah. we've just had a text oh, from you? somebody saying, do you think porn is harmful? Oh, yeah. <laughs> well done, texter. Porn can be harmful. I think porn can, in some contexts, be useful. Like anything, it kind of depends on how it's used. But porn is certainly full of misinformation. Porn is um, a very limited and very distorted view of what sex and sexuality is about, let alone, and I'm not sure that it really shows you much about relationships at all. No. No. Yeah. I mean, and I think, again, you know... We're not going to be able to stop people from looking at it. But again, if we're starting conversations broader and keeping things honest, you're setting up a framework so people who are looking at porn, especially young people who don't have a different you know, touch point about it all, will at least feel like they can come to you or at least have an idea that maybe this isn't reality or maybe this isn't how things are going to go. I think many young people, hopefully the majority, kind of know that this isn't reality. They know that... It's no more reality than the latest superhero movie or whatever. The trouble is that, you know, with other aspects of human relationships, often there are documentaries, there are, um, you know, kind of quite quite realistic dramas and that kind of thing, and that's still a pretty limited resource. You can't say it's not there, but it's still a pretty limited resource Do you when think it comes to sex and sexuality. Do you think, Nick, even though probably when a lot of people, even children or younger people, look at pornography, they can tell that this isn't quote-unquote real, we're still, we are seeing things like an increasing coercion around anal sex for young people and and Mm -hmm. some things that seem to, at least in, in my understanding, suggest that people are taking cues from pornography. So even if they're not looking at it and thinking this is real, it is coming into people's real lives and they don't have the tools to navigate that. Oh, look, absolutely. And certainly um, people are learning a lot younger about a much wider variety of sexual experience. And I also think some of the very um, um, misogynistic attitudes in porn are validating um, some ideas that, you know, I mean, a lot of insecure young men will feel. Anyway, if we are insecure in ourselves, we often project that onto making the other wrong. That includes the other gender wrong. Is it still the case that, because it was the case when I was a teenager, that pornography was the way a lot of us came across our first information about sex? Definitely. Is it still the case? <laughs> Can confirm. Right. For boys, for girls as well? Yes, I would right. say so, especially with internet now and well, Tumblr used to be a big source where especially teenage girls would find pornography the first time. Tumblr was... This was before the Sister Foster stuff around um, that mm-hmm. kind of sparked all the stuff about internet pornography. It was also a way to find more specific porn that wasn't as necessarily misogynistic or aggressive. You could search more specifically and not get exposed to really violent porn. So especially with trans youth or gay youth, uh, sometimes porn is the only way they can really find out about how they can explore their sexuality because especially those orientations, they really don't have a roadmap in any way. The Sister Foster, Sister Foster, that mm, you just referenced. Tell me more about that. You know, I'll give this as vaguely as I can because I, I don't want to script the details, but it was basically a policy put forward um, and passed in, in the American government that was framed to protect 
against trafficking, sex trafficking, um, especially with youth, but actually it's targeted a lot of consensual adult sex workers and their ability to make a living or create content or market content. And it's actually pushed a lot of sex work back into the dark, making sex trafficking more likely and it being more difficult for them to pick up on it because they can't monitor things as easily because it isn't on the internet sites anymore. When I think about my experience as a teenager, and now you're telling me that that's still pretty common now, and given that the importance of understanding relationships between intimate relationships, in a way I wished it was one of the last things I came across in mm. terms of information mm. on sex, not the first. I mean, it would seem to me better that people had a greater understanding of of the needs of each other and being sensitive to the needs of your partner and respectful of your partner. That's much more important than that, actually how you do it. That was what I was wanting to say before about even though you might know that it's fake, actually if you don't know what feels good to you yet or would feel good to your partner and you don't know what you're into yet, instead of finding out on your own, it's very likely you'll just emulate literal scenes from pornography. Mm. And I agree with you. If it was more of a gradual self-exploration without, again, you know, rigid expectations because porn is really showing one type of sex, I think it would be far healthier and people would have a far more varied and fulfilling sex life. But, yeah, that's uh, sadly not really the case. At its worst, pornography to me seems to be propaganda for a certain way of having sex from a male point of view. And you yeah, the whole pressure of having anal sex as well. That's what a woman really wants. And when a woman really wants you to do that, then you're really a powerful sexual person, which is just mm. not a very helpful message for young men to be getting, I would have thought. No, and there's definitely the message of, oh, she'll like it once it's actually happening. You mm. just have to get it to start, which yeah. is just a horrible way of going about anything in sex. Mm. Mm. Yeah, there's no consent in that equation. Can I actually ask you both, Lick and Lena, about this? So... If you're in a situation, Lena was growing up, what was your, were your feelings, you and your partner, about exposing your child to information about sex, to pornography online, whatever? Did you, did you, have, did you have any policy at all about that? Mm, we had a lot of yeah. lot of thought and discussion. Yeah. She had so. two sex therapists for parents. So. <laughs> yeah. You, poor you thing. can imagine. You and she can still imagine. wants to talk about it. I know. <laughs> we, you know, thought and talked about it a lot. I mean, uh, for us, um, I mean, we worked uh, quite hard to try and get the Keeping Ourselves Safe program, which is run by Auckland Help, into uh, the uh, kids' preschool, into the uh, play centre. So we were starting before school age to sort of uh, you know, help our kids and help you know, the kids in our community learn what was age appropriate for them. And, I mean, I'll never forget it. The first time I looked at porn when I was about eight, I, I think I just, like, Googled sex and was looking at videos. They had set up, like, a safety net where they got emailed if that sort of content was being accessed. Right. And they thought it was my older brother at first, but... Your Always. older brother got the blame. No, they asked him. He said no, and they believed him, which is the first good point. <laughs> um, then they came to me, and then I broke down crying. It was very obvious. <laughs> you know, that was our family desktop. And so you don't want to be alarmist in those conversations, but if someone, like I was eight, it's important to talk to them about what they've seen because they don't have any context for it. And I, I think that was positive, even though at the time it was horrifying. My son, I was in an office. It was a mechanic's office. There was a girly uh, calendar up on the wall, and he noticed it. I hadn't actually noticed it until he pointed it out to me. 
and I said, those photos there, what did you think of them? He was looking at them and he, he sort of didn't say that much about it. And then I said, well, those images are not necessarily how women are. I didn't quite know how to do this, actually. I was feeling my way. But I felt the need to just say to him, that's not necessarily how women are. I don't know if I chose the right words. Mm. I just was no. trying to, to get something into his head about that yeah. for future reference. Well, I think that's really good. And I think that's something that, I mean, I'm the non-parent here, but, you know, <laughs> taking those opportunities to have the conversations that just come up in everyday life because sex and sexualized beings are everywhere. Mm. Like, that's the best thing you can do is something comes up on the TV, you see something in the mechanic's office, talk to your kid because they notice everything. At the least, you're, what you're doing is saying, you know, talking about these things is a legitimate topic for conversation. Mm. And that's a really important message to give your kids. Have you got any more questions that have come through? Because we're taking one. your questions on um, sex and sexuality. Yeah, we've got one that um, is a different version of something that we hear all the time and it was on our list of common topics to discuss. So, hello, I cannot be bothered with sex anymore. I'm 55 years old and my husband is 60. He would like it lots, but I don't. Why is it so important to men? Which, I mean, the last part of that question, I think, um, is interesting because we hear a lot of stories where it is, you know, the female in the heterosexual relationship mm. that wants sex or intimacy that isn't happening. So it can very much happen both ways. But what are your first thoughts, Nick? I mean, it's certainly the the prevailing belief that it's more important to, to men than to women. There is some truth to that uh, in our culture, but there are so many exceptions. You certainly can't say that it's you know how it is. And I think as uh, women are increasingly entitled to have sex and their own sexuality on their own terms, uh, a lot of them are showing more and more interest in it, actually. Mm. So a new thread of research that I'm sort of noticing coming out now that's suggesting that actually women are the ones who suffer from sexual boredom more rapidly and more intensely mm. than men in monogamous relationships. That's yeah, something I wonder about with this question a lot is you're, say you're sick and bored of sex, but maybe that's just the type of sex you have been having up until this point. Mm. You know, you could have been having very vigorous, penetration-focused sex, and that doesn't appeal to you anymore. And maybe starting out in less intense ways of being sensual and intimate you know, without the expectation of it turning into full-on intercourse, there are lots of other ways of being sexual that might appeal to you more, and it's okay if the sex you were having doesn't appeal to you anymore. You can change that. That's mm. okay. Mm. And it's also for people to... It's okay for people to not want to have sex. You don't have to. And certainly, um, you know, the hormonal changes that people experience as they age can make the sort of Im imperative need to have sex, um, you know, fall away. And if you're comfortable with that, that's fine. You you know, you be how you want to be. Um, but, you know, I think there, there is an issue there if you uh, are in a long-term committed relationship and part of the kind of contract between you was that it was a sexual relationship and you unilaterally decide you don't want it to be a sexual relationship anymore. I think that kind of... Um, you know, creates a problem, and uh, I think that needs to be discussed and negotiated rather than just Im imposed on your partner. The first question is, have I lost interest, interest in sex generally, and is this something I don't want to be a part of my life anymore, or is the kind of sex I was engaged in something that is not appealing and there's other things I could look at? And then from there, how do you start that conversation? Well, I think, I mean, you know, sadly, a lot of people have had 
uh, you know, a sex life where, where, where they weren't able to discuss and in a, a lot of heterosexual relationships, a lot of the women have kind of put up with the kind of sex that their male partner wanted. Um, and, uh, you know, it's been so long since they thought about what they might want that, you know, they don't really have any knowledge of that anymore. And I think that's sad and I don't think that's their fault. That's a, a result of conditioning and culture and a whole bunch of things. If you are like, no, I don't want this part of our relationship anymore, where, how can you move forward from that? Well, you're allowed to what you, what you want, but then you have to kind of think, okay, so where does that leave my partner and what, what are my expectations? That, that he has to abide by my decision and that's the end of it? I get to impose a, a life of celibacy on him? That doesn't seem very consensual either. So I don't think you should have be made to have sex you don't want. That's not consensual. But I don't think people should have to go without sex when they do want it as well. How yeah. many people feel that this whole conversation is just too tricky and they just decide, oh, I won't well, mention it at all? I mean, I think that's what has happened and that's often how people end up in that situation is that they haven't been talking about things for decades. Um, so to try and start the conversation now is really, really difficult. But... You know, for a lot of people, they're very invested in, in, in their marriage and their long-term relationship, and they don't want it to end. And so it's kind of like, well, you know, sometimes what kicks us into new growth is a crisis, a really important mm. crisis. Mm. And that's, you know, often how we do grow, and it's okay. It's not fun, but it is quite normal, and it's quite healthy, and it's part of a healthy and good relationship. Someone is asking how safe is sex during pregnancy, and I'm guessing that doesn't mean in terms of um, avoiding pregnancy, but in terms of how safe for the expected child? Well, the general answer is very safe. I'm not a medical doctor. I'm not an obstetrician, gynaecologist. That's my understanding. Um, you have to have a particular medical condition to make it unsafe. And indeed, if you're overdue, um, it's a recommended way to in induce the birth because... There are chemicals in uh, men's sperm that can help uh, bring on the birth. Just have the car ready to go. <laughs> yeah. Um, Nick, you've talked a little about the way that sex can carry all sorts of meanings and extra kind of baggage or freight within a relationship and how that extra weight can sometimes strangle the life out of the intimacy itself. Can you elaborate a little on that? Well, I think... Um, I mean, all of us can be, I mean, as you were saying, you know, so, okay, we're just hungry, we're actually hungry for, you know, physical affection and we end up initiating sex because that's what we know how to ask for. But also, I mean, it's things like I'm, I'm feeling insecure about my attractiveness, I'm feeling insecure about my worth, I'm feeling insecure about my lovability, I'm feeling insecure about my importance. Rather than having an intimate discussion about that, I try and get you to have sex with me to make me, you know, to, to somehow, um, you know, reassure me about whatever that insecurity is. You know, anybody can do that in any relationship, but I certainly think this is part of the reason why men are seen as so much, you know, so much more intersex than women, is because uh, it's certainly in traditional male culture, men are not allowed to show vulnerable emotions of any kind, but they are allowed to be horny. If you're a man and your emotional your Clint Eastwood and your, your range of emotional expression is, you know, you're allowed to be angry and you're allowed to be um, competitive or dominant or powerful. You're allowed to be horny. So then, you know, if you have any vulnerable feelings, you channel them into uh, initiating sex. And I think that's also important in relation to women, especially women in relationships with men who have been conditioned to be really sensitive and appease their needs because... 
it can be the same thing during sex rather than voicing what they actually want. They're like, oh, I know that this is him expressing a need for control or a need to feel, you know, in his power, so I'm not going to interrupt what's happening now. And then that will lead to resentment. In a you know, traditional kind of female role, I appease, I please, I manage other people's feelings for them. But again, it's sex is then it's being messed up by a whole bunch of other considerations rather than here we are, the two of us wanting to you know, have fun together, wanting to give each other pleasure, wanting to explore together, wanting to nurture each other, you know, whatever's going on right in this moment. There's a whole bunch of other subtexts and, and layered meaning that we're not talking about well, in well other that, ways. That kind of baggage is going to weigh down any intimacy, isn't it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, flat as a pancake. You know, when I do sex therapy, I mean, I don't spend a lot of time talking about sexual dysfunctions. This is the kind of thing I'm talking about. Mm. You're listening to a live episode of Bang. I'm Brian Crump, Bang's host, presenter and producer, Melody Thomas is with me. Also, Nick and Lena Bates, sex counsellors. <laughs> We've got questions coming through. Did you yeah, want to just go on briefly, that? I would like to uh, just uh, reply to Julia, who just she just wants some more advice for couples like the person who texted in about this differing sex drives and one person maybe wanting sexual intimacy when the other doesn't. And I, mm-hmm. Julia, it's so common and we don't have enough time to really dive into it, but go th- to Bang, the series, and there's a lot in there, um, of a, a lot of advice for this kind of thing. And if you want as well, you can email me at bang at rnz.co.nz and I'll help you find um, some more information that way. This one, I'm 66 and I've always had a very small penis. And so most females told me, and I got sick and tired of it all the time. Last time was more than 30 years ago. I took up masturbation, and that took care of my sexual needs. No amount of trying to persuade females mattered. Pain in the ass. I'm not interested now. Hmm. I'm really sorry that this has happened, and this happens a lot. I don't think it's talked about that much, but there is a lot of shame from men as well, but straight women shaming penis sizes you know, people my age who preach body positive, all these things, they'll make comments, they'll make remarks, they'll ask questions, and it's just not okay. And if you think the size of someone's penis will guarantee you or guarantee that you won't feel sexual pleasure, you're really on the wrong track. (laughs) But I want to start by, you know, kind of validating that experience and that it it is sadly so, so common. I mean, it's a really sad story, and... Again, you've got to respect this person's right to kind of make, make the choices and protect themselves rather than go on looking for you know, partnered sex. But I would also say that I have worked uh, with other people uh, where this has been an issue and it's um, made them very skillful in other forms of love lovemaking and they've had very satisfied partners. So Discussions around erectile dysfunction and premature ejaculation, that kind of thing has come up as mm. well. One of the people I talked to ha- mm. mentioned having a MacGyver toolkit or something like it yeah. to, to return to in, in those times. That sounded like that was much enjoyed by the partners they were with. You know, we use manhood as a, you know, as a synonym oh, yeah. for penis. And so it's a really unhelpful way to think or talk about people and their bodies and, and certainly about their sexuality, you know, let alone their personhood. Mm. Someone's written in about something that happened with their child. Yeah. 
My eight-year-old son has engaged in sexual play with his friend, a same-age boy. How should I have handled this? Does that mean he might be gay? Can this sort of play create imprints that would sexualise him towards gay interactions later on? Uh, no. <laughs> sure. But only if he's gay. <laughs> yeah, no, no, but, yeah. Well, then that's not imprinting. Yeah, it was just already right. there. Yeah. So <laughs> if he's gay, he's probably gay, and if he's not, he's probably not. Am I yeah, right in and, saying that? And yeah, so absolutely. many people have same-sex sexual interactions early on in life, and, and it doesn't mean anything about anything at all. Mm. Yep. The first thing is that sexual play between same-age playmates is really normal at, at eight years old. Masturbation at any age is normal, but you know that would be around the age where kids are really starting to understand or think about you know sex and things and and, and explore and you know and there's doctors and nurses and all that sort of thing. Yeah, um, I did all that stuff when I was young as well, and I think part of it is because we divide so heavily boys and girls. You just happen to be with other girls, and that's when you do your sex play, not sex play, but you know your exploration stuff. And it could have mm-hmm. easily been. A, a, a female child, but you know we do group them so exclusively that this stuff is bound to happen between their closest friends. Mm. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so no, to the to the best of our knowledge at the moment, though uh, your sexual orientation is not a matter of imprinting, so mm. it's not going to have any. Well, I remember at that age, yeah, putting around boys mm. and girls. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, and in the Just podcast normal. I called one of the children that I had one such experience with and we That's chatted right. about it yeah. yeah, for the first time in 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> He's also a well-known weatherman, so you might want to seek that one out right. as well. <laughs> if you can hear what we're saying and understand that it's normal, telling them that it's normal, that, that you do need to respect everyone's boundaries because something that I felt is as I got older, I was like, oh, that thing I did when I was young was wrong. That was wrong something I shouldn't have done, that was naughty. You know, there was probably five, six years there before I was talking to mum, and she was like, oh, no, that was fine. I was like, could have used that advice a bit earlier. So <laughs> if, if you can... <laughs> well, I'm just like, no, you know, even you guys aren't perfect on this stuff. Um, <laughs> <I'm> devastated. <laughs> so, you know, if it is appropriate and it does come up, you know, for their future more aware self, just setting the grounds that it was okay and they didn't do anything wrong, if... You know, everyone was happy with it. You know, you're allowed to satisfy your curiosity and interest and that's okay and that's normal and there's boundaries around social appropriateness and yeah. things you need to enforce for your would, kids. Would useful advice be to well, be considerate of those that are around you and be considerate of the other person and don't do anything they don't want to do and if they want to do something you don't want to do, don't do it. Exactly. We've had yeah. a text in about lube and lubrication which is something I've become more and more, more passionate about over the series because I think when I started so I really saw it as something that you only you know went out and bought if you needed it quote-unquote, needed it. It was a sign of and, a problem, wasn't it? Yeah, and the yeah. more I talk to actual mm. sex therapists and educators, it, the more it's just something that everyone should have if they're engaged in any kind of sexual activity in their bedside table and maybe also their handbag. So what's the best way to introduce lubrication when the woman dries up? Then that might be age-related, not sure. We've tried several approaches, but it was very painful for me, and in the end he gave up. Okay, well, that's, I mean, that's a concern. So, um, I mean, certainly one que- question would be, were you using enough? Uh, were you putting it on his penis as well as, uh, you know, on, on your, your vulva and the outside of your, your vagina? Because that's not enough. You should want some on his penis as well. If you were using lots and it still hurts, then I would just get that checked out. Um, 
as we get older, our tissue thins and it is, includes the mucous membranes of which you know, your vagina and your penis indeed uh, are one. So um, tissue thinning is really normal and sometimes a topical estrogen cream, uh, a little pessary or something like that once a week can make a difference and reduce that. But you want to just make sure that there isn't kind of some kind of um, skin problem or um, fungal infection or something like that. In this case, maybe... Not saying this is what has happened, but not using lube as the only change you make. So still you are having sex at the same rate you were having before, but now you're just trying to add in lube. It might be that things need to take a bit longer or build up over time, or you need to try different types of play, you know, slowly work towards whatever you were doing before with the lube. But um, it's it's often, like any fix, best used in conjunction with other, um, you know, other changes you could make. And that's something we hear a bit about sex toys from people who sell sex toys as well as people coming to them saying, please fix my relationship when there's other stuff that needs to happen around that as well. So we've had another text come in. What about being in a homosexual relationship for 11 years and a heterosexual marriage for 34 years and the marriage partner doesn't know? A different version of this we hear a lot where it's about disclosure. It's Mm. about having waited a long time and so the weight of that disclosure has gotten heavier. Mm. Mm. And the feeling of having kept something from someone. The question is, what about? Well, I'm well, guessing, what about disclosure? Yeah. What about disclosure? Like how? What like am I going to do? Please. Yeah. <laughs> when you've kind of um, kept that big a secret for that long, then um, it is really difficult, and there certainly can be a lot of repercussions. And you know, people can feel like, well, hang on, the marriage or the relationship hasn't been what I thought it was for 11 years, and. I don't want a part of it, kind of understandably. You know, you also have to question what, you know, what, what would be the motive for, for disclosing at this point? Where, where would you be coming from and what would you be wanting to achieve? And, you know, for some people it's about I'm feeling like I'm living a lie or I'm living out of integrity and I really don't want to live like that anymore, which is, I mean, fine, understandable. But you have to be willing to pay the cost if that's become really important to you. In yeah. your experience... Are men more able to compartmentalise their lives and in order to do this? Um, that's the cliche. Yes. Uh, that's not my experience. Mm. You know, Some people would argue that women are actually better at hiding infidelity than men are. Also, the name of the person who texts in is ambiguous in terms of gender and could yes. go either way. So. It's true. Mm. Good point there, Melody. It's funny because I was imagining a woman texting and you were imagining Yes, and there you go. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, This is probably if people did want to text in your last chance to text in um, in the next kind of 10 minutes. It's a prostectomy one. Mm. Mm. Yeah, my partner has had a prostectomy. Since then, he never attempts to initiate sexual activity. In fact, he rarely even touches me. Is this normal? Sadly, um, it's not an uncommon story. Um, I was actually just talking uh, with somebody uh, who is a psychologist who uh, works at the Cancer Society, and I was asking her, I said, do you, do you see many people with um, uh, uh, post-prostate surgery? And, and she said, yes. And I said, uh, and are the urologists getting any better at talking with them about sex? And she said, no. Which is really, really sad to hear, um, because... Um, Prostate surgery, even nerve-sparing prostate surgery, does have an impact on sexual functioning, and it is often not discussed with them at all adequately. It may be maybe very briefly mentioned in the sort of consent phase of the to the surgery, but 
It is really not talked through, and people are busy thinking about cancer and saving their lives, and so they're not they're not really hearing that other piece. And it's yet, yet it's really important for a lot of people post surgery. It's the most important thing that's happened, and depending on the nature of the surgery and, and so forth, there's a lot that can be done to um, restore sexual functioning uh, post-surgery, but it requires information and it requires diligent work. And if you haven't been um, adequately prepared for that, and indeed uh, you should be, uh, in most cases, put on um, uh, Viagra or a similar drug um, before the surgery even, um, then you're going to get to the end of the surgery think, oh, you know, be told the surgery is successful and then discover that your penis doesn't work. And if you're not really, um, if you're not prepared for that, it's a pretty alarming discovery. And if you don't, you know, if you're not used to talking about things, then you're left with, you know, shame, embarrassment, grief. And a lot of men will curl up and, you know, into themselves rather than talk to their partners about that. What's mm. the first step for this person, do you think? Start trying to have the conversation, and but be very mindful that your partner may be really hurting and full of um, shame or, or grief. So don't kind of go at them saying, you know, why why don't you want to have sex with me anymore? Don't go in accusatory. Go go in kind of going, hey, I want to talk to you about something, and it might be really sensitive. And you know, since you had your prostatectomy, you, you haven't initiated sex, and you haven't sort of even been very affectionate. And you know, I'm really missing it if that's true, or I'd really like to know what going, what's going on. I mean, uh, I don't know how it is for you. Um, have that conversation. We have about two minutes to wrap up. Melody. I'm a woman in her 60s, and I can count on one hand the number of times I've orgasmed during penetration itself, and I've had several loving partners in my life. I was once told by a doctor that 70% of women have the same experience. Those lucky 30%. I feel like this is one of the main myths we get from movies. Yeah. <laughs> it really is, sets us up to fail. Yeah, I mean, I think <laughs> this is something I would love to work towards changing, is just our basic definition of sex doesn't serve so many people, including women, including disabled people, including non-binary people, just the basic penetrative sex usually isn't enough for a large group of people, and that's fine, and there are so many other ways to enjoy sex. The 30% are lucky that they can come through uh, penetration, that's okay, but also there are so many ways to enjoy pleasure, and then if you want to climax and you need something like clitoral stimulation that's fine but having orgasms at different times and in different ways it's all good as long as you're having fun and you're feeling pleasure you know your sex isn't wrong and your orgasm isn't wrong melody um and lena and nick thank you very much for joining me you've been listening to a live edition of bang with uh, myself melody thomas presenter and producer of Bang, a series on sex and sexuality. Now, there will probably be more questions that are going to come through. Melody, you'll be picking them up and probably following them up. I will pick them up and you can email me at bang at rnz.co.nz as well. That's it for this Bang bonus episode. Thank you so much, Brian, for having us in your studio and to everyone who got in touch with questions. You just heard the email address. Always welcome to get in touch with me. Next week, we're going to dive into the world of kink, and after that, the final episode of the season explores sex positivity. Sex positivity.